Matthew 2. Go ahead and open your Bible. Turn there with me. We're going to be in the final paragraph, uh, Matthew 2, 19 uh, through 23. And we're going to be looking at how the little family, Joseph and his little family, has uh, moved initially from that first starting point, hearing that there's a reason for why Mary is pregnant. It's from the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've moved to Bethlehem. uh, And then because of what happened, persecution underneath Herod, we've moved to Egypt. And now it's time to go home. And home will be in Nazareth. And so Jesus the Nazarene is what we're looking at. And uh, just by way of introduction, I feel like I should explain myself a little bit uh, for uh, what happened last Sunday, uh, just as we get going here. Um, some of you heard that I, I injured my back, and so I wasn't able to be here. And so uh, the person who was supposed to speak, Ryan, ended up, Ryan Lowen, our guest speaker, got sick with COVID, so he wasn't able to be here. Uh, Anthony was on vacation, so he wasn't able to be here, and we're at Plan D, and I call up Wes and I say, you're up, my friend, and um, it really ended up not being plan D, it was actually plan A, because as we looked at what happened last week, I said, what do you got, Wes? And he goes, well, it just so happens that I'm planning on preaching Christmas Day on uh, the life of Herod, and I go, well, that works out, because that's literally the next thing in our passage that we were going to look at, and you're going to set me up for one I preach the following week. And so uh, I chalk that up to, or I choose to say, it was all the providence of God to make that happen. And so uh, I also want to say, uh, for those of you who became uh, members last week, uh, if you're here, once again, we want to welcome you in uh, to uh, the family here. And we are better now because you are a part of us. And so it's a, it's a privilege to be able to walk alongside you as we uh, are part of your discipleship process, but as you serve alongside us in God's kingdom. Let's now do something that's going to be challenging. Let's try to focus on God's word. Maybe you have already opened up Christmas gifts or you have been patient enough to wait till after the service. Um, But one way or the other, let's reorient ourselves to what God's word has for us in Matthew 1 through 2. We have seen through a messed up, in some ways, family tree that Jesus really is the king. We have seen that he, by making his home with us, the God-man present with us, is Emmanuel. Last week we saw that despite a counterfeit king who thinks he is in charge, God really is in charge, and he has sent Jesus. And now, let's read in verse 19. After this family has moved from Egypt, they get word. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And so Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. Let's just recap here. He's been born in Bethlehem, and what happened next? After that, Herod meets the wise men, the wise men saying, we're going to meet Jesus. He says, I want to worship him, but he really wants to kill him. Um, And the wise men then go to see Jesus. They have a dream themselves to go back to their own land, not go back to Herod. And they end up going back, and Herod um, loses his marbles and decides to take out every child underneath the age of two that is a male. 
But before that happens, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, go to Egypt, and by doing so, you will circumvent the process of destruction at the hands of Herod. And so the words begin, but when Herod had died. That's how it begins here. And herein lies the problem for so many of us. We've been pointing this out over the last month. The problem is, is that this is familiar to us. When you think of Christmas, you think of, if you were with us last night, you think of the manger. You think of the star of David above, Joseph and Mary, sweet baby Jesus. You think of that scene, right? You probably don't think so much of a family fleeing for their lives, refugee status. I came across this, these words from uh, Malcolm Goot. He wrote a poem called Refugee um, o- over 70 years ago, and it gives incredible imagery to get us into the reality of what has just happened. We think of him as safe beneath the steeple or cozy in a crib beside the fonts, but he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and wants. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up and on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb who is upon the throne. Many of us have been reminded over the course of the last two weeks, this Texan has been reminded of this, um, that it is a gift to have a warm house in the middle of a blizzard. Amen, right? Yeah, exactly. But Jesus identifies with those who have no place to lay their head. He identifies with the refugee because he himself had to flee to a land that once enslaved his people. He identifies with the poor because he was not born into social status. He identifies with the persecuted because from the beginning of his life, someone was trying to kill him. He identifies with you who may have not had stability of home or didn't have it in your own upbringing. And when I've had my own moments where I go, Lord, where do I belong? There's something that stabilizes my heart to know that the Son of God had instability in the beginning of his life and most certainly during his earthly ministry, and he did it for me. How real Jesus is. And and now we're told for the fourth time that the angel appears in a dream. There's divine intervention through a dream. And Joseph, in this case, he's called to return to Israel, and he's told that Herod has kicked the can. And so from there... It's time for the family to go home. And that's the setting for everything that's about to unfold. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. You may want to circle Nazareth. That'll be important in just a moment. Fear to go to Judah, goes to Galilee, eventually goes to Nazareth. And so there's this mention of this character named Archelaus. If you just, at the very least, humor me for a moment, uh, let's get into, just briefly explain the the political backdrop to this because it'll make sense to what's happening here. 
The guy's name is Archelaus, and the political backdrop is this. Herod the Great, who Wes talked about last week, he has died, and now his Herodian kingdom is being split up into three different groups by his three different sons, Antipas, Philip, and Archelaus. And if you've read the historical um, secondary literature by Josephus, who um, was a guy that was a first century Jewish historian, no Christian by any means, he speaks about what kind of guy Archelaus is. Tells you why Joseph is afraid. The president, when he's inaugurated, he usually steps up in front of everybody and he says some words about hope, about shared ideals that bring us all together. When Archelaus is inaugurated, uh, for him, he decides to, to wipe out 3,000 uh, congregants that have come over, come over to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. Kind of an unstable guy, if you read about him. And so, as God has spoken in a dream before, he validates Joseph through another dream and says, yes, go to Galilee instead. And go to Galilee where Antipas is at. You go, Antipas, I know who Antipas is. If you read further on in Matthew, Antipas is the very guy that imprisons John the Baptist because John the Baptist says, yeah, you probably shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife. That's a bad idea. And so what he does is he, through a wild story, cuts off his head and puts it on a platter on his birthday. That's that guy. So we have three nutty brothers and one wicked father here. And so I tell you this so that when you read about Herod in the Bible, understand it's not the same guy all the way through. It's the father, and then you have sons, and you have other characters, all with the same title. And so through fear and through a dream, we're on a winding road, and we end up in a small little town called, it says city, but it's really an overstatement in your translation, village is probably accurate, called Nazareth. Probably less than 500 people, according to many of the commentators. When you drive through it, you blink you miss it, and it's tucked away in the Galilean hills there. And this is where the God-man himself that we've been talking about in the incarnation, he will be raised and grow up until he is of age, 30 years of age, to go on the ministry that we all know about. The end. That's how the story ends. And as I was reading this, this is the thing that gets me, y'all. Every single time I approach Scripture, I look at it, and I go, okay, we're going to preach. We're going to look through this together. What do you got, Lord? I need help. Speak to me. And it never fails that there's always something in God's living and active word that has relevance for my life. And so as we have asked and answered that question, how does a genealogy speak to our life? How is it that an ancient account of someone's roadmap, how could that speak to our lives? I believe it can, and this is what I want to show you. I want to show you two things. The first one by way of two observations that show us the sovereignty and providence of who God is for us on December 25th, 2022. And then the second one has a lot to do with that last little phrase that he will be called a Nazarene. So the first one, God's providence. You notice, and this is what we've been pointing out, we've kind of been sprinkling this throughout, that in several places God speaks through a dream. Five times, actually, in Matthew 1 and 2. Four times to Joseph, one time to the, um, to the wise men. And you think about each time that God speaks, what he is doing is he is speaking in such a way that is over and above human wisdom 
and what man would have done. Think about it this way. If the angel never speaks to Joseph initially, likely he divorces Mary. She's a single mother. If the wise men are never informed in a dream not to return to Herod, Jesus' life is snuffed out even before it begins. Same thing is true. If the angel never warns Joseph to seek refugee status in Egypt, he's amongst those many young boys, age two and under, who die. If the angel doesn't speak, if the angel doesn't speak and affirm Joseph in his sphere, who knows what Joseph would have done with his fear, where he would have ended up at. And while we can get so, so caught up in the what ifs, I know, I know I have a tendency to go, well, what if this would have happened? It's really easy to do that. Don't miss the point here. God is orchestrating human history in such a way for his purpose to deliver the life of his only son. The significance of what I'm saying doesn't really become that powerful until you zoom out and you see the whole gospel of Matthew for just a moment. When you see that this story is one cog in the whole machine of what Matthew is trying to show you, you see that what is really going on is that God is delivering his son in this moment because it's not the right time. He's delivering him in this moment because later on he will in fact be the Lamb of God who will be slaughtered for the sin of all men. And so he is delivered here in the present so that he would die and you would be delivered for all of eternity. And so see that this is sovereignty with a purpose. Man isn't in control. God's in control. He has absolute sovereignty and he's in charge and in control, but has the purpose of your salvation. And someone might say, okay, Aaron, you're you're going too far here. Surely God isn't that hands-on in orchestrating all human events. Um, that sounds a little heavy-handed. I'm not sure I feel comfortable with that. I, I like my autonomy. Thank you very much. And I would say, friend, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's go a step further here. Let's just, let's just keep going, looking at the evidence. Have you noticed that not only does God intervene so clearly through these dreams, but everything that has happened Brother Matthew says it was to fulfill prophecy from hundreds of years ago. Not only five times do we get five dreams, but five times we get statements like this. This was to fulfill the, what the prophets said. And so Matthew is narrating along and he's saying, look, everything that's happening happened here was predestined already to happen. God has so orchestrated this in such a meticulous way that you cannot miss what he's doing if you've read your Old Testament. Is God sovereign and in control over all human events to accomplish his purpose? Yes, fully, finally, for his glory, so you wouldn't miss it. How else could this be so perfectly put together? It is for his glory that you wouldn't miss it, and it is for our good. So here it is, friend. God's intervention, don't miss it with that purpose, is to show you that he loves you. Do you have any question that he loves you this morning? Some of us in this Christmas season, are we living in that dryness? Would you see his all-surpassing, encompassing love for you? I talked to a friend this week, and we were talking about how we can have 
seasons of dryness when we're reading scripture. This is the thing that we're not supposed to talk about. Like, as Christians, aren't we always supposed to, when we sing the songs, when we hear the sermon, or we read the Bible, aren't we always supposed to be filled up with those feelings of just deep affection for the Lord? Isn't it supposed to be always be powerful? Isn't it supposed to be always as awesome as it was on that first day that we believed? We would wish that would be the case, but that's not always the case because we know the reality that we all go through seasons of dryness, even when we read the word. I said this last night, and I want to repeat myself again. Here's good news Christmas morning. It's that regardless of how you may feel, that doesn't change history for you. Regardless of what you may be walking through and what you may be encountering in your own life that may be a block for you fully worshiping the Lord, your affections are not turned up the way they ought to be, the way Jesus's always are. But the good news is that history doesn't change in the past for your present. Like, here, here's the good news. You may walk out of here this morning, and you may feel no closer to Jesus, Christian, but regardless of what you feel, he still loves you just as much before the service and after the service. He doesn't change. Thank goodness for his unchangeable nature towards us. And so, regardless of how inadequately you approach him, He's always patient. He's always tenderhearted. And regardless of you, he isn't going anywhere. And God's intervention in this story is proof in history that he loves you. So take your cold heart and tell it the truth. And regardless of how you feel, believe what is real. God intervened in history and he did it for you. Second, God's intervention is evidence that he is capable of providing for you. So the question is, if you see everything that God did for this little family, you see, you see what he's capable of. Don't you believe, friend, that also he is capable of taking care of you? So think about it this way. I don't know why two spouses have to lose their father in the same year. Their father's in the same year. I don't know why a family has to relocate during the Christmas season. I don't know why random sicknesses wreak havoc on families. I don't know why some of us are having to experience the reality in this Christmas season of that person who should be there at the Christmas table or that person who should have been there already to open up Christmas gifts before the service or after the service. I don't know why we have to go through those things. But I do know that if God orchestrated his son's life for my salvation in the past, he will orchestrate my inconveniences, my sorrows, even my, my shortcomings in sin, my frustrations in the present, ultimately for my good. What is impossible with man is always possible with God. The evidence is not only in your life so far, but it again, friend, is right here in the text. Don't miss it. So you sum up, you see God's sovereignty is evidence that he loves you. What he does in this passage and his sovereignty is evidence that he is fully capable of taking care of you as you enter into 2023. The last part of verse 23 says this. It says this. What was spoken by the prophets, all this happened so that it would be fulfilled that Jesus, he would be called a Nazarene. That's how Matthew ends. He gives a little, little clarification here. That he would be called a Nazarene for this purpose. It was spoken by the prophets. And you read this and you go, if, if you dig into it just a little bit, stay with me, you will see 
There is no text in the Old Testament that says this. Unlike the rest of the passages that, that Wes has pointed out or that I've pointed out so far, when it says the prophets, this happens so the prophets uh, would be fulfilled, and then he gives this passage. Look at your Bible and you'll see it's actually written out, out text here, but then Matthew speaks sort of generally at this point. You will not find the word Nazareth, Nazarene, you're not gonna find that in your Old Testament. And you ask the question, okay, so did Matthew, did he, did he mess it up here? Did he quote something outside of the Old Testament that we're just missing? Did he misquote scripture? Some have said when he says that he would be called a Nazarene, is there some sort of connection there with that Nazarite vow? If you've read the story about Samson, how he has all those religious um, vows put upon him, can't eat this, has to do this, has to, certain, certain things like that. Is that what's going on here? Kind of a problem, though, when you read further on in Matthew because uh, Jesus is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, so he's probably not a Nazarite, right? What is going on? Well, I think the clue comes from understanding the insignificance, once again, of Nazareth itself, friends. This is where it is. Remember, small town, nobody's significant. Someone even says later, can anything good really come out of Nazareth, right? You know that? And so the king of kings is called Jesus of Nazareth. And with that title, it's pointing to his insignificance and his rejection. And when you have that understanding of what Matthew is doing here, all of a sudden those Old Testament prophecies begin to open up. And so probably the most significant one is Isaiah 53, which is really the only place that I know of that gives any kind of description of what Jesus looked like. Despite all of the pictures that may be in your mind when I say, what did Jesus look like? Yeah, that's not in scripture, right? That, that's kind of stuff that we've come up with ourselves. But this is what Isaiah 53 says. It says, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is not Brad Pitt with long hair. This is a man that if you were in a crowd with him, you would have probably passed him by because there's nothing about him that stood out to you and how he looked, where he came from, or his social status. Nothing would stand out. Does that, does that kind of shock you to think that you would, you would likely pass by Jesus and you wouldn't even know it based on what you saw. But nothing would stand out until he would start speaking to you. And I have quoted this passage to you, I think, several times before this, this last fall. But let me remind you once again. He would say things like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with 2022 and I will give you rest as you enter into 2023. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me like never before, friend, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He would say things like that to you, and you would find your heart, again, strangely warm going. He speaks with truth and with authority like no other men. He knows me better than I know myself. Oh yeah, he is my creator and he knows what is best. He would say, come and see. Come and follow this humble king. 
So have you fallen down? Guess what? Righteous man gets back up again. He does it because of the words of what this man speaks. He seems insignificant, but he's not really. And so the spirit of Jesus and the bride, the church, says, come. And let the one who hears says, come to this Jesus, this humble one. And let those who are thirsty come. And let those who desire to take the water without price from the one who gives living water and eternal life. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, Emmanuel, God with us, and the King of Kings be with you all on this Christmas day. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda. M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.